Let's pray. Our God and Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we come before your throne this morning again, Lord, to worship you, to acknowledge you as our God, as our Savior, the one who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and gave us to Christ that we may be saved by his righteousness. And now we stand, Lord, not on our own goodness, but on the goodness of Christ, on his accomplished work, accomplished righteousness, that you have freely given to us by grace. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace. For without the gospel of grace, there is no hope for man. There will not be hope for any man on that day. The day that we shall meet face to face with our maker and to give account. And yet, by your wisdom, you have already judged us in Christ. Our sins were put on Christ. He bore them and he took them away. And now we possess his righteousness. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you for your wisdom in giving us this gospel. May you cause your people to love Christ. May you cause your people to love the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you cause your people to look to Christ always to love Jesus. Because he is worthy of all our adoration. You love Christ. And if you love Christ, then he is worthy of all glory. We thank you this morning, Lord, for your word again. And we ask your blessing upon it. May you give me the power and the clarity to teach the gospel, not with words from man's wisdom, but from the wisdom of the Spirit. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39 says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's the word of the Lord. And for a title, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus. Anyone thirsts. Let him come to Jesus. The Lord Jesus is still at the week-long feast of tabernacles. And the Jews are very excited, as always, to see him. And to hear from him. And as always, they show their excitement by wanting to arrest Jesus. 
They want to arrest Jesus. But his hour has not yet come. The hour of Jesus had not yet come. And therefore they could not do anything to him. To their frustration. The Jews and Jesus. Have been arguing. And always argued. Over the Sabbath. But in the context of. John 7, they have been arguing over the Sabbath and circumcision. And the Jews think that Jesus is a lawbreaker who should be arrested and killed. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not deterred. He is undeterred. He continues to heal anyway and write in their faces. He's not afraid of them. The Lord has to heal on the Sabbath because he has come to fulfill the Sabbath and to interpret for them and for us what the Sabbath is all about. The Sabbath was never about not picking sticks on Saturday. The Sabbath has always been about Jesus himself doing a work that brings God's people into God's rest. And this work no man is able to do. There's none born after the first Adam who are able to do a work that brings them into God's rest. The law was not able and is not able to bring rest to God's people. The law was not even able to bring rest to God's people from their enemies when they entered Canaan. When children entered into the promised land they still were buffeted by their enemies. And that is why Joshua, according to the book of Hebrews, spoke of another day, he spoke of another rest, which was not to be by the works of the law, but by the obedience of faith in Christ Jesus. So the Sabbath keeper, the true Sabbath keeper, is not one who refrains from working on Saturday, but is one who believes in Christ Jesus. That is the true Sabbath keeper. The healings on the Sabbath were foreshadowing. They were a foretaste. They were a picture of salvation and of the rest that was coming through the cross. As Jesus temporarily lifted the infirmities of his people in preparation for the hour of his glorification on the cross. So on the hour of his glorification on the cross, that is when God's people entered into God's rest. And they entered into God's rest Permanently. All their enemies were defeated on the cross. 
So those who continue to talk Sabbath don't understand the work of Christ and they don't understand who their enemies were. The enemies were not the Philistines. The enemies of God's people were not the Philistines. The enemies of God's people were sin, death, the devil, and God's judgment. And all these were taken care of on the cross during the hour of Christ's glorification. But as Jesus is in Jerusalem, he has pointed out the hypocrisy of the Jews in their lack of understanding of the Sabbath and their lack of understanding of circumcision. And he has shown them that they circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses could not be broken and yet they took issue with him doing a better work that healed the whole person and made them complete on the very same day. The Lord has done a good work in healing the whole man and yet they, by the law, could only circumcise part of a man. The external part of the man, the external washings that do not make a sinner righteous. The law cannot make a sinner righteous. It does not matter what gymnastics, theological gymnastics, people make about the law. Some will say, well, the law is divided into the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. And so, Christ got rid of the ceremonial and the civil, but the moral we can still do. <laughs> but the Bible teaches that all these come not as separate parts of the law, but they come as a unit. They come under one covenant. They come as the old covenant. And so they are inseparable. And if you miss or offend in one part of the law, Apostle James says, you are guilty of the whole law. The law can make one religious, as what happened with the Pharisees. It can make them look clean from the outside. But inside, according to Jesus, they are still full of dead men's bones. The Lord said in Matthew 23, 27, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, pronouncing a war on them, he said, war to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, you see, the law makes you a hypocrite. Because a sinner can't do the law. They can't honor the law without being a hypocrite. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. <laughs> but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. The law only makes a sinner appear to be righteous. But can never make them righteous outside God freely giving them the righteousness of Christ. Trying to be good by the law 
is like putting on lotion and deodorant without showering after a lifetime of sweating and not showering. Listen to this. It produces a different smell from the deodorant. And that may even cause a worse stink. And actually does. Sin is something that we have had for a lifetime. And cannot be removed by spraying good perfume over it. And yet people are still buying gallons and gallons of perfume and whitewash to try and perfume and whitewash their own tombs to make them smell good and appear beautiful outwardly to other people and hopefully to God. But the Lord says, inside. You see, the concern of the Lord is inside. He says, I don't care about your outward behavior. But inside, I look inside and all I see are dead men's bones. And all uncleanliness. The Lord sees it all. And the Lord cannot be deceived. And that is not a pretty picture. But that is how God sees all things. He sees with much clarity than even x-rays themselves. But we have the good news of Jesus. Jesus brings a better circumcision. A circumcision that is performed not by hands. A circumcision that is done inwardly. And he also brings a better rest. Right now, we don't even conceive what it means to enter into God's rest until we actually enter it in glory. And you shall see how beautiful this gospel is. When you see Jesus himself sitting on his throne, then you would have entered into God's rest. Jesus Christ brings lasting salvation. And his gospel heals the totality of the man Right now, you may feel like you have not been healed, but God says, as far as he's concerned, you have been healed. By his stripes, you were healed. You were healed. Not you are healed. You were healed. So your healing happened on the cross by his stripes. If men as sinners have to rest from their works of trying to be good and trying to please God, they need healing from Jesus. And he alone is able to do it. Jesus alone is able to clean you up from inside. And once Jesus has cleaned you, and once Jesus has said, you are clean on account of the word that I have spoken, then you can just wipe off the dust. You don't have to take a whole shower. You can wipe off the dust because you have been made clean. The whole man has been made clean right from inside. But unless Jesus says that all washings are in vain, unless Jesus pronounces you clean, then all washings are in vain. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.22, Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. 
declares the Lord God. Sinners need Jesus to circumcise them. They need the Holy Spirit to be given by Jesus himself to perform a work in them to change them from inside. They need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to them. But the Jews do not know this. The Jews are not satisfied with Jesus' arguments. And so they question his identity and origin. And when they were questioning his identity and origin, they were questioning his authority. By whose authority do you say these things? By whose authority do you do these things? They see that Jesus is performing some mighty works. But the problem with his resume or his CV is that they think they know him. That's where the problem is. They acknowledge that he is doing some wonderful works. But the problem is they know him. They know his parents. They know his brothers and sisters. And they know where he lives. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And if they know him, that automatically disqualifies Jesus from being the Messiah. And that makes Jesus a deceiver. Which they already were insinuating at the beginning of the chapter. That this man is a deceiver. If anything according to them, the origin of the Messiah could not be known. But that was of course some false speculation. Because the scriptures did say where the Messiah was going to come from. He was from the seed of David and was to be born in Bethlehem. Which Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But the Jews and Jesus, as always, are not talking at the same level. The Jews and Jesus are speaking at different levels, as expected. The Jews think that because they know Jesus and where he comes from, it is insane for him to claim to go somewhere where they can't find him. Jesus has told them, that where I am, you cannot come. Where I am, we talked about that. Where I am, you cannot come. And they're thinking, of course, Jesus, we can find you. <laughs> of course, we know where you are going. Where else could you possibly go other than to the Gentiles, other than to the unclean people? You are going to go to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, who were scattered all over the Roman Empire. During this time, there were just two classes of people. It's either you belonged to Israel as a Jew, you were an Israelite or a Jew, or you belonged to the Greeks, that is, the rest of the world, the Gentiles. So they say, well, you can't disappear from us. Where else could you go? <laughs> Where else? From here, you can only go to the Gentiles, to those unclean people. Which, of course, Jesus was going to go to the Gentiles after the, the resurrection. He sent his apostles into the Greek world, into the Roman-speaking world, and they were preaching the gospel. But on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, 
which would have been the seventh or eighth day. The feast went for seven days, but it had a Sabbath afterwards. So depending, it could have been the seventh day or the eighth day. They were both considered to be last days. Jesus stood up. He stood up again and he cried out, making an invitation and a promise. He stood up and cried out that he may draw attention to his words. But we need a little bit of background to the feast to build the context. From my reading, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a water rite or ceremony that was performed by the high priest. It is recorded by many scholars of the Bible that during the, the, the feast, the high priest filled a golden pitcher with water. And this pitcher was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And as the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court of the temple, there were three trumpet blasts that were sounded. And as this was happening, there was a lot of joyful singing and shouting. And then the water was taken by the high priest and offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice, along with the daily drink offering of wine. So this was happening every morning during the week. The water and wine were then poured before the Lord. So this rite, this ceremony, was part and parcel of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody is aware of it. Everybody is aware of the water rite. So on the last day, Jesus stands up and says, guess what? Let's talk more about that water. Come to me and I'll give you some water. Jesus stands, stands up and says, come to me, whoever is thirsty, and drink the water that I give. Jesus is claiming to be what? High priest. He's claiming to be high priest. Because it is the high priest who had the water. Water not from the pool of Siloam. But the water that is from me. And the water that functions at a different level than the water from the pool. And this promise of water had been taught by God in different illustrations and different ways in the Old Testament. God taught about the water when he gave the children of Israel water from the rock. As we learn from Numbers 20, 2 to 9. Let's read that. Numbers 20, 2 to 9. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, but we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? 
It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded. And of course, this time around, this is the second time that this happened. And of course, Moses did not properly follow the instruction of the Lord and he got in trouble for it. But the point still is, God has this water that he is miraculously providing to his people. And then Apostle Paul will come and pick up this story and say in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, And they all drank, that is all the congregation of Israel in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And that rock was Christ. And in Psalm 78, verses 14 to 20, this is what the psalmist records for us. Psalm 78, 14 to 20. He is recounting the history of Israel as they surged through the wilderness. He says, Then he led them with a cloud by day, and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. <laughs> he split the rocks in the wilderness. That's Christ being split in the world on the cross. It's God who split Christ on the cross and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? <laughs> Isaiah 55.1 Isaiah 55.1 Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Ezekiel 47. 1 to 12. We're going to speak to Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. Because the theology of the water that we are talking about is there in this text. Ezekiel's vision. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. 
He brought me out of the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my angles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross. For the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, Araba, goes down into the valley and enters the Dead Sea. And when it enters the sea, its waters are healed. The waters in the Dead Sea do not flow. The waters in the Dead Sea in the Middle East does not flow out of the Dead Sea. And that means they have no life. There's no significant life in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is fed by the River Jordan. The River Jordan empties into the Dead Sea. But it does not flow out. And so, it is the Dead Sea. That is the reason why it's called the Dead Sea. Because it's a Dead Sea. It's stagnant. There's no life in it. So the deadness of the sea is a picture of the deadness of all men because of sin. You're going to love this. So just as the very salty sea does not support aquatic life and is non-fruitful or unfruitful, so is every man outside Christ. They are dead in trespasses and sins and are unable to produce any fruit that is pleasing to God until this living water flows into the Dead Sea. Until this living water flows into the Dead Sea. Hear this, verse 9. It shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. So there is some kind of water which when it starts flowing into the Dead Sea, it brings life to the Dead Sea. And this could not be talking about Catfish and tilapia in the Dead Sea. Can't be talking about that. It's talking about the water that Christ is talking about. So once this water has arrived, it gives life to all that it comes into contact with. It heals them. You see, it heals the waters. It heals them who are dead as the Dead Sea. It heals their 
salty water and gives them life that they may bear fruit unto God. And it talks about the great multitude of fish. And as I said, that is not talking about fishing. This is a picture of the spiritual fruitfulness of those who shall receive this water in the eschatological age, which is the age of the Messiah, which Christ came to establish. So just as the dead water is given life by the fresh and living water, because you see, this water that is flowing through is a living water. The water that is flowing through is a living water and it brings life and fruitfulness to all those that get it. And that is similar teaching to the good ground that Jesus talked about and in the parable of the four soils, right? The ones who get in contact with this water, they become fruitful. And in the parable of the soils, there was the one good ground. And it is this good ground that bore fruit. That is the one that yielded fruit 30, 100 times, whatever fold. Listen to verse 10. It shall be that fishermen who stand by it from N. Gedi to N. Eglem, there will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. And many shall come to stand by this living water and be very fruitful in their works. And many shall come to stand by this living water and be very fruitful in their works. Not in their fishing to catch big fish, but in their works, in their spiritual works. See this connection. Contact with this living water brings life, abundance, and fruitfulness. Life, abundance, and fruitfulness. And these are all pictures that are painted for us of the reality of the gospel. The reality of what God would work in his people and what becomes of them, not just now, but in eternity. Listen to verse 11. But if swamps and marshes will not be healed, they will be given over to salt. What is that? What kind of theology is that? The swamps and the marshes are the other soils that did not produce fruit. The rocky ground, the path, and the thorns. God does not send or direct his living water into the swamps and the marshes. The reprobates, the unelect. He leaves them swamped in their sins and does not heal them. But the issue here is everyone is dead. And yet he directs his water to only go to certain places. The water is not limited by anything other than God directing it not to go there. That's sovereignty. That is sovereignty. 
even if you are talking about just the land. Because God is not short of power to cause more water to flow into the swamps. And yet he doesn't bring his living water there. Verse 12. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. But along the bank of the river, on which this living water flows, will be life. All that is planted by it will not wither or fail. They will bear fruit every month. What does that mean? What does that mean? It is not talking about bearing fruit from January to December. That can't be what is being said. It is describing the character of those that have this living water. They shall always be fruitful from the time that they get this water and to all of eternity. Because they shall never lose this water. So as long as they have this water, they shall always be fruitful. Why? Ezekiel says, because their water flows from the sanctuary of God. Because their water flows from the sanctuary of God, they have the life of God. They bear fruit because of the source of their water. They bear fruit because they are planted by the river of living water. And this also speaks to the necessity of the union between that which is planted and the water. If the tree is far from the source of living water, then it cannot bear fruit. And so the Lord will say in John 15, 4 to 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you see, God uses a lot of agricultural language to teach spiritual things. So what is all that saying? That is saying we have to have a Christological understanding, a Christ-centered understanding of everything in the Bible. Of all the feasts and of, of all that was instructed by God to be done in them because they find their fulfillment and meaning in Jesus. Jesus is saying he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles in this context. He is the fulfillment of what the Feast of Tabernacles represented as he is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as he does that, he is the Passover lamb. And as he rises from the dead, he is the first fruits. And he is the feast of first fruits. 
So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And even in this context, he provided water to the children of Israel in the desert. It's Christ who did it. But now he comes with the real water, but a different water from what they were thinking, a water that functions at a different level, and a new birth that also works at a different level. But as we have read, all these pictures were already there in the Old Testament. And the Jews were supposed to have understood them as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you are a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things. So Jesus' understanding was if they were reading the scriptures right like Ezekiel, they should have been able to see what Jesus was talking about. They would have known that God was going to be the one to cause all these things to happen and Jesus comes and claims to give the very things that God alone had promised to give in the Old Testament. <laughs> and that makes Jesus not a deceiver if they understood what Jesus was talking about. The kind of water that Jesus invites people to drink is the water that God alone had promised to give in the scriptures. And if Jesus comes and he gives this water that God alone gives, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am he. I am the God of Israel who gave you water in the desert. But now I have come to fulfill what all that water was talking about. So with that understanding, John records for us and says in verse 37, 38, and 39, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this is spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would believe for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up to draw attention to his teaching and to himself that in the process he may remind them or tell them that the God of Israel was the one who was standing right in their midst. To say he is the one who had given them water even to their fathers in the desert. And he is the one who had promised to give it in the ages to come. But listen to this. Jesus did not say, if anyone thirsts, let them come to God. Rather he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me <laughs> and drink. Which means Jesus was claiming to be God for those who had ears to hear. And we are going to have Jesus say in John 8.58 to the very Jews before Abraham was, 
I am. You go figure. If you want to go crazy, go hang yourself. But that's the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Oh, no, you are not even 50 years old. How can you say, Abraham saw my day? <laughs> I love that conversation. But we need to draw some more theology from what Jesus was saying. Because we need to understand what that means. Who are these that test? Who are being invited to come to Jesus? And what are the signs that one is thirsty? Because that is very important. If this is Jesus' work, and it is important for our salvation, we need to understand what Jesus was saying. And who are these people who are thirsting? And what is the nature of that thirsting? Because you see, the call is not to everyone. The call is only to the group that is described as those who thirst. And if anyone has to come to Christ, they have to be one of those who are thirsty. But this is not talking about thirsting for Kool-Aid. I know Stan loves Kool-Aid. Or Hawaiian Punch. We have like a five liter thing of Hawaiian Punch upstairs. This is not talking about thirsting for water or any kind of drink. This is talking about salvation. And Ginny is thirsty. And so the question that we have to answer is who are these that thirst? It is they who are born again. It is they who are born again. John 1.13 Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These are the ones who get thirsty. This teaching is not separate from John chapter 3. This teaching is not separate from the water being turned into wine. This teaching is not separate from what we just read in John 1, verse 13 and 12. Of those who received him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the new birth causes one to be thirsty for Christ. It causes one to realize that they are not righteous and cannot be righteous in themselves. To feel thirsty is to feel your need for Jesus. To feel thirsty causes one to cry out, men and brethren, what shall I do to be saved? What shall I do to be saved? It causes one to come to Jesus and say, Lord, where shall I go? Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. The ones who thirst are those who are elect and have been born again from above. Those who have been born again from above to a living hope. Everybody is born into something. Christians are born to a living hope. 
because of Christ's death and resurrection. But here are more spiritual characteristics of one who is thirsty from the sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is describing the character of those who thirst for Christ. And it is these who have been made thirsty by the new birth who hear the invitation to come to Christ and to get his drink. And it is my sincere prayer that God will cause you to be thirsty for Christ. It is my sincere prayer that God will cause you to be thirsty for Christ. Because when I get to heaven, I have to be looking for you. Where is Crystal? Where is Robert? I'm serious. Because this is not just going to some show. This is eternity. And so we have to avail ourselves to what God has revealed to us about how eternity works. If Christ does not cause you to thirst for him, you cannot hear the invitation. And you cannot have the water that he is inviting you and I to get. And the problem with many professing Christians is that they are not thirsty. And that is why the gospel is not good news to them. And they do not have much joy over it. And that is why they come to Jesus for other things than Jesus Christ. They come to Christ for self-validation, but not to drink from the Lord's cup. You need to drink from the Lord's cup. Don't play with Jesus. Pray that the Lord will cause you to be thirsty. The thirsty are those who are poor in spirit according to Jesus. It's not those who don't have money. It says those who are poor in spirit. And that means those who have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit a broken and contrite heart. And God says in Psalm 51, 17, These, O God, you will not despise. God does not despise those who are poor in spirit. But why is their spirit broken? Why is their spirit broken? And why is their heart contrite? Because they know something about themselves. They know something about themselves. And this is what they know. Romans 7, 18. For I know that in me, 
that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who are contrite in heart, are those who realize that there's nothing good that dwells in their flesh. I don't know about you, but I know. (laughs) I know for me that in my flesh there's nothing good that dwells. And so, if you know that the next question is, who shall deliver me from this body of death? They know, as Apostle Paul, that they are the chief of sinners. Not that they used to be chief of sinners, but that they are right now, present tense, the chief of sinners. Are you still the chief of sinners? Apostle Paul, even having seen Christ, taught by Christ, still saw himself as the chief of sinners. Outside Christ, war is me. These are the same ones who mourn, according to Jesus, not because of global warming, not because of climate change, or fret about who is going to get in the next or win the next presidential election, or who are worried about the direction that the country is taking, Jesus does not talk about that. He says they mourn for lack of righteousness. They see and know that their lack of righteousness is the biggest threat to their own existence, not global warming. They mourn for their sin and their inability to remove it. But Jesus says, these who are thirsty are the blessed. These who mourn are the blessed. And these are the same ones that David by the Holy Spirit said in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom The Lord will never count sin. So they are blessed. Which means they are spiritually prosperous. That's what it means to be blessed. Not the Joe Austin way of blessedness. But the Jesus way of being forgiven of your sin. They are not looking for the better you. But the worst in themselves that they may run to Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who are gentle. That is meek. That is kind and tender. And this is not saying those people who open doors for other people. That's not what that is saying. This is the gentleness that comes from being born again. The gentleness that comes from having the Holy Spirit of God in you. Fruit of the Spirit. The kindness and tenderness of the Spirit inhabiting those who are born again. Because they are poor in spirit, they mourn. Because they are poor in spirit, they mourn. And because they mourn, they are gentle. And because they are poor, and they mourn, and they are gentle, 
the hunger, and the thirst for righteousness. Every person who is mourning, if you have seen someone who is truly mourning, they are gentle. They are always gentle. They are gentle. They are gentle and their spiritual makeup in this situation is described as being poor. And they are gentle and they hunger and they thirst. And Jesus tells us what they thirst for. He says they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst to be satisfied by the righteousness of Christ. To be clothed by the righteousness of Jesus. But Jesus continues and says, Because they hunger and thirst, they are merciful to others. Because they know that God has been merciful to them and made them righteous in his own son. But a lot of teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, it creates an impression by those who don't know the gospel that these qualities are self-generated. It creates the impression that when you go in your corner and you just start crying by yourself and just... Then that's what Jesus is talking about. No, that's not what he's talking about. <laughs> these qualities are not self-generated. You can't cause yourself to be any of these things genuinely. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. These are signs of one who is born again and they are all describing the same thing. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit produces these characteristics in a person. They are found in different degrees. You are not going to have all of them in one person, but you are going to find these in different degrees in different people. But they are the hallmark of the Spirit's work in the person who has been born again. And as long as Christ tarries, and as long as we have not yet been glorified, we shall continue to be identified by this. We shall continue to mourn. We shall continue to seek for the coming of Christ that we may be fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so he says, Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How can you make your heart pure? Because if this is something that you self-generate, how are you going to make your heart that is full of deceit and evil scheming, how are you going to make that pure? If this statement is saying this is something that you can do by yourself, then you're in serious trouble. You never see God. You never see God if this is up to you. But this is what it is saying. Your heart is only as pure as you possess the spotless righteousness of Christ. You got to hear that. As far as God is concerned, your heart is pure because of Christ. Because of Jesus, all things are pure in you before God. And that is the scandal and beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel comes and says, someone as wicked as brother Robert, he is righteous. And his heart is pure. But how can that be? Because I said so. <laughs> God said, 
in first Samuel 16, 7. This was when they were picking David to be the king, new king of Israel to succeed Saul. He said to Samuel, the prophet, do not look at his appearance. Samuel had picked up one of Jesse's sons, Eliab. And Jesse was the father of King David. And Jesse had a number of sons. Samuel looks at Eliab and says, that's him. And God says, no, <laughs> that's not him. Why? Because I don't look at appearance or look at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord does not look at your stature. What is that saying? The Lord does not look at your accomplishments. The Lord does not look at your accomplishments because he does not see as man sees. We all look at men and what they have accomplished in their lives and we just glorify them. Look at him. Oh, what a wonderful man he is. God says, no, he's not. <laughs> I don't look at men as men sees. The Lord looks from inside and if he sees his son, that is what pleases him. No matter how, you may look from outside. And these who possess the righteousness of Christ, God calls them the peacemakers because in Christ they have made peace with God. Hear that? And in Christ have been adopted to be children of God. So he says they shall be called the children of God. How do we get to become children of God? Other than our adoption through Jesus Christ. So in Christ, God has made us children by the new birth. And so these are who thirst. And these are who hear the invitation to come to Christ. And Charlie asked me his question earlier. About how do you know that you are born again? And this is how you know that you are born again. You thirst for Christ. You love the things of Christ. You want to hear about Christ. And you see that in yourself there's nothing good that you can bring before God other than the righteousness of Christ. And so to come to Christ is to believe in him. And to rest on his teaching about himself and what he has accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. But many, but many, many, many in Christendom have their own spring water bottles to quench their own thirst. They will not heed to the call of the one who gives the water that alone satisfies and forever quenches your thirst. Sister Samaritan, you still remember her? Sister Samaritan woman received this water from Jesus. She had been thirsting and she was trying to quench it by having many men. She had had five husbands, according to Jesus. And now she was on her sixth, a live-in, who was not her husband. 
But now the one who brings the true water, the true satisfaction, the seventh husband, Jesus, the perfect husband, shows up. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So everyone who continues to drink water from their own well, which means who seeks satisfaction of their approval by God, by what they do in their own duties, in their own life, Jesus says, you will never get satisfaction from that. Never. Jesus says, leave your water pot with him. As the Samaritan woman did. Remember, she left her water pot, the instrument of her laboring. She used her water pot every day to come and fetch water for her own use. And Jesus, by that teaching, she left her water pot with Jesus. She left her laboring with Jesus. And we also, if we are understanding the teaching right, we also have to leave all our strivings to try and be accepted by God on the feet of Jesus. And Sister Samaritan said in John 4, 15, the woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I pray that the Lord will give you that prayer. Because that's a prayer. That's a prayer. That's a prayer. If you're asking if you want to ask God something, that is the prayer that God hears. Give me this water so I will not thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. What is that saying? The woman says, if Jesus gives her this water, there are two things that are going to happen. She will thirst no more, number one, number two, and she will stop her laboring. She will stop coming all the way to draw. If you get this water that Jesus gives you, you stop working for salvation. You repent from your self-righteousness. You stop going to the well to find satisfaction and acceptance by God. We as fallen people, we have the tendency to want to dig our own wells. <laughs> we want to dig our own cisterns that produce no water. And God says in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Your works of self-salvation are broken cisterns, the Lord says. They can't hold no water. And you need water for eternity. Real water that God gives. You can't drill a borehole when you get to heaven. Okay. I know we have some people who are going about drink, drilling boreholes <laughs> uh, in Africa somewhere. But that's not the water that people need. That's temporary satisfaction. The people need the real gospel. The works of the flesh are evil before God. They may appear good in your eyes, in my eyes, 
and in the eyes of others. But God says, that's evil. My people have committed two evils. It appears righteous, but God says, it's evil. So, what is the water that Jesus gives? Verse 39. But this is spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So all this water was a figure of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can only be given by Jesus himself. And not by throwing him at people like was done by Pastor Chris of Christ's embassy. The Holy Spirit is God and cannot fit into the hands of a man as to be thrown like a tennis ball. The giving of the Holy Spirit is a function or work of the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not as men. There's not a single man who has power to give someone the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit does not belong to man. He is God's Spirit. He is Christ's Spirit. Only God can give God. God the Father gave the Son, and the Son and the Father gave the Holy Spirit. You hear that? But it is the Son who baptizes. It is the Son who immerses His people into the Holy Spirit. John said, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does that mean? It means the giving of the Holy Spirit was waiting for the cross. To go on the cross was not just shame on Jesus, but it was his hour of glorification. The son was glorified in his weakness on the cross by submitting to death on the cross. But it was necessary, according to John, that Christ be glorified, that is crucified, that is conquering sin and death and pay for our sins before the Holy Spirit could be given. The Holy Spirit, as long as Christ had not died, the Holy Spirit could not be given you to possess him or to be possessed by him. So the Holy Spirit, listen to this teaching, the Holy Spirit was to be given as a gift and celebration of Jesus' conquest of sin and death. So the giving of the Holy Spirit is Jesus' announcement that the work of salvation is done. The Holy Spirit had not been given to individuals on such a scale ever before and to indwell people as happened on Pentecost and going forward in the New Testament age. For the giving of the Holy Spirit was an eschatological promise. It was a promise of God of the blessings that he would give to his people with the arrival of the Messiah. So it was a promise of the new age, the new age to come. The age of the prophet that Moses talked about. And so Jesus would come and say in John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, 
it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the coming of the Holy Spirit was contingent on Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting and going away to the Father so that he would send the Holy Spirit down to his people. And now that Christ has been glorified, the invitation still stands, the invitation still remains even in this hour. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne again. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And his hour of glorification that put away our sins and his victory that sends the Holy Spirit this way to us who were in the wilderness, who were thirsty and dying without the real water that gives life. And yet now we possess the Holy Spirit. We have the life of God in us. We shall always have the Holy Spirit in us in all of eternity. And he is working to cause his people to be fruitful, not just for a month, not just for a year, but for all of eternity. And that is the promise of Christ, that we shall never thirst again in all of eternity. Why? Because we would have entered into God's rest where all provision has been given to us. Lord, we thank you for your people. May you bring understanding to them. May you cause them to be thirsty for Christ. May you cause them, Lord Jesus, to be thirsty for you. May you recover the gospel in the hearts of your people. May you recover the gospel in the church that your people may glory alone in Christ who gives us the water that springs up into eternal life. We pray and we thank you. For all those who shall hear, may you grant them all these things that we have prayed for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.